I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Psalms again, Psalm 42 and 43 will be the focus of our attention this evening. It is another psalm that relates to the expression of God's covenant presence among his people in those times in which we are cut off from the meeting place of God's covenant people in God's house for worship. Psalm 42, again another psalm of the sons of Korah and 43. As the heart brayeth for the rivers of water, so pants my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, even for the living God. When shall I come and appear before the presence of God? Mine tears have been my meat day and night, while they daily say unto me, Where is thy God? When I remembered these things, I poured out my very heart, because I had gone with the multitude and led them into the house of God with the voice of singing and praise as a multitude that keepeth a feast. Why art thou cast down, my soul, and unquiet within me? Wait upon God, for I will yet give him thanks for the help of his presence. My God, my soul is cast down within me, because I remembered thee from the land of Jordan and Hermon, and from the Mount Mizar. One deep calleth another deep by the noise of thy water spouts. All thy waves and thy floods are gone over me. The Lord will grant his loving kindness in the day, and in the night shall I sing of him, even a prayer unto the God of my life. I will say unto God, which is my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning when the enemy oppresseth me? My bones are cut asunder. While mine enemies reproach me, saying daily unto me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Wait upon God, for I will yet give him thanks. He is my present help and my God. Judge me, O God, and defend my cause against the unmerciful people. Deliver me from the deceitful and wicked man, for thou art the God of my strength. Why hast thou put me away? Why go I so mourning when the enemy oppress me? Send thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thine holy mountain and to thy tabernacles. Then will I go unto the altar of God, even unto the God of my joy and gladness, and upon the harp will I give thanks unto thee, O God, my God. Why art thou cast down, my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Wait upon God, for I will yet give him thanks. He is my present help in my trouble. I'm sorry, and my God. Let us pray. O Lord, would you grant to us a kind of quieted souls before thee this evening. Give us 
by your grace and by your spirit, sweet reminders of your providence and your provision. O oh Lord, would you plant our hearts ever deeper in the work of your kingdom, that your priorities would be our priorities, that we would find ourselves ever dependent upon the, upon the blessed nourishment that is found in your house so that we might say that it is good to be in your presence. And so we give you thanks for your help and the help that simply comes in being with you. And so even now, speak to our hearts. Quiet them. Give us strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I had preached this series, a few sermons from this selection of psalms that forms the second book of the Psalter. There's five matching the five books of the Torah, the Pentateuch. And these psalms reflect some redemptive historical themes that we find illustrated in the book of Exodus. For 400 years, the people of God languished in prison in Egypt, and not just imprisonment and hard labor, but genocide. And there is much to learn from those blessed early history books of our own identity, of how we are to live as strangers in a strange land, of how we are to be obedient to God before men, and the pain that comes when we are kept from corporate worship. That is what the psalmists are speaking of. The sons of Korah were writing, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, songs that reflect the thirst, the hunger that is found in a heart, in a soul that is swept up with the glory of God and the joy and the satisfaction that is found in his presence. Now, in the Old Testament, the manifestation of God's presence was singular as to its location. He was with the tabernacle. At first in the garden with Noah and his family in the ark. He visited with Abraham and actually ate with him. He came down as a, a burning golden censure of fire. And there Abraham beheld the covenant of grace cut, made with Abraham and all of his offspring. He met with Moses in the burning bush and he said to him, Take off your shoes for surely the, grand upon, the ground upon which you're standing is holy ground. It was holy because it was the place in which God came. And that bush, a burning bush, though not consumed, was a foretaste of the blessing of the people of God as he would dwell among them. So the bush, so Israel, or as the bush, so also Israel. God would dwell among them as a purifying fire. Of this reality we read of the, the gold that is refined by the refiner's fire. God dwells among his people and in his presence they become like him. And so when you come for worship, though there are many things that could distract you, the primary occupation of your heart and your mind ought to be the glory and majesty of God 
and the law that he has given to us whereby we learn how to live. And all of this God does in worship. Now in the New Testament, Christ makes it very clear in John chapter 4 and elsewhere that it is not on the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple stood or the mountain in Samaria where that unholy temple stood, but wherever there was word and truth or word and spirit, wherever the spirit is, wherever the people of God are, wherever there are two or more gathered in my name, so too I am there with them. And so church isn't some place you go so much as it is a place where we are gathered. The corporate worship of the saints could literally be 50 feet that way and nothing would change. And in fact, days like today, it would be wonderful, if not even more distracting. (laughs) But nature itself is a kind of sanctuary. It reminds us of God's presence. In fact, all of the earth was a temple at one time. And by God's grace, he is giving to the church the Holy Spirit, and it is becoming a temple yet again. And one day, by God's grace, all the inhabitants of earth will worship our God. And from sun up to sundown, the praises of our God will never cease. Now, here in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, the sons of Korah are lamenting the fact that they are kept by God's enemies from entering into the sanctuary of God. They are kept by the enemies of God who are nothing more than the satanic manifestation of the children of the sons of the serpent. This is a spiritual battle. And this spiritual battle is manifested by two houses, the house of God or the house of Satan, the tabernacle of the Holy One or the tabernacle of the devil himself. And it is here that the psalmists reflect upon the nature of a heart that is swept away, that is swept up, that is focused upon the glory and beauty of the house of God. Three points that I want to make tonight. Number one, longing for the house of God. Longing for the house of God. Secondly, a longing unsatisfied for impediment or because of an impediment. And then thirdly, a longing for vindication. A longing for vindication. Let's look at this first point. We see it in verses 1 through 4. A longing for the house of God as the heart. That's the old English word for deer. As the deer pants or brayeth, calls out. It is physically in anguish because it needs to drink. As soon as I say that, I go, I get thirsty. Like the ad in all of the theaters wherever Coca-Cola is a sponsor, and there's that glass, and you hear the ice going into the glass, and then the soda is poured into the glass, and you go, I gotta have a Coke. There is an abiding desire that should be in the life of every believer. There should be a longing for the house of God. Now, when I say the house of God... Old Testament, the temple. New Testament, the temple is the body. It is still represented by a place where you go with God's people. 
But it is the house because God is there with his people. And so I think we can understand what he is saying. I want to be in corporate worship. I don't long for private or family devotions, though those things are important, but I long for a corporate, congregational, covenantal expression of God's redeeming work. This is, in fact, the default. This is the holy reflex of a people who understand that they have been called into community that we long to be in that place where God uniquely reveals himself to his covenant people as an expression of eternal faithfulness. And so, he pants, he brayeth, he cries out, he has a dry mouth. His soul aches for God And that experience of worship when he, verse 2, comes and appears before the presence of God. But there's a problem. In midst of this panting, he is moved to tears by the blasphemy of those who would keep him from the Lord's house. Do you think about the danger? Do you think about the the offense of blasphemy? Sometimes blasphemy takes the form of just taking the Lord's name in vain. Those words you can't stand to hear in a movie or in public or at a TV show. And every time you hear them, you, ugh. But it isn't just blasphemous words, it's blasphemous lives. Any life that is not lived under the reality of the lordship of Jesus Christ, is a blasphemous life. It is a lie. It is an offense to God and to his holy character. When I remembered these things, verse 4, I poured out my very heart because I had gone with the multitude and led them into the house of God. Verse 5, Why art thou cast down, my soul, an unquiet within me? Verse 6, My God, my soul is cast down. He is responding to the heretical lives, those who would oppress him, those enemies without. What is our outlook upon those who blaspheme the Lord by robbing him of worship? What is our outlook of those who would seek to impose unrighteous edicts upon the conduct of our worship? We're actually being faced with these questions today, aren't we? in ways that are subtle and ways that are not so subtle. But we must understand this if we are to draw a line where proper obedience is to be kept. That God calls us to dwell in his presence in such a way that not a single exercise of corporate worship is hindered by anything except God's providence itself. Now, there are times, and here we find it, providentially, Israel, the nation of Israel, is under the judgment and wrath of God. And for this reason, they have been cut off from the sanctuary as a means of drawing their hearts back because you miss what you cannot have. Five weeks. 
Five weeks, we sat behind our television screens and we watched a sermon. And we sat on our couches and we worshipped in our at-home clothes. (laughs) There was something happening. But it wasn't covenant worship. It's better than watching a sitcom, certainly, because you're learning things. But it is not an occasion whereby the saints of God are renewed and established and strengthened in the covenant promises of God. And when we came back together, it was just five weeks. I can remember just the, are we back? Is it real? There was, yes, touching. (laughs) There was hugging. There was the breaking of the six-foot rule, which is such a strange rule. And we look at the world, and I think for many of us, the illusion that the church is welcomed in a place where the sowing of evil laws is welcome came crashing down upon us we realized oh here's the play the game is afoot and like the sons of Korah we longed for the house of God but there was at least for a time what appeared to be a providential hindrance but it wasn't just don't go there were edicts that were imposed that when you do go you can't sing And if you do sing, you have to sing muzzled. And all of these things were handed down to us. And many Christians stood upon this premise. Well, at least we get to go to church. And I guess that's something. But can you go to the house of God and just be there? And not engage in the free exercise of religion and be satisfied? You see, what the psalmists are longing for is the occasion of delighting in the things that happen in worship. And when those things that God has rightly, regularly given to us in worship, word, prayer, sacrament, and the singing of psalms, what are we doing? We are entering in, body and soul, into the exercise of covenant renewal worship. And the beauty of God is reflected on the beauty of our faces. The beauty of God is reflected in the beauty of our voices. And I prepared these sermons a long time ago, and now I think, oh, now I see. It is the great plot of the enemy of God's people to keep them from worship. Now... If it was your American reflex for liberty that wanted you to do what you were told not to do, that is not righteous motivation. Righteous motivation is this. It is to do what you have been commanded to do by God and to find in that command a heart of delight for his presence and the presence of his people. And so the psalmist recall 
When I remembered these things, I poured out my very heart. At Presbytery this past weekend, we song, sang Psalm 98A. 98A is a different arrangement, and it's pretty tough. There's parts. But when you have a hundred men singing with bravado and volume, even though you don't have the ladies to sing the higher parts, there is something it does to your soul that just gets into you and makes you long for more of it. It's the good meat. It's the good, rich food. And one of these days, we're going to sing Psalm 98, and it's going to be awesome. But I'll say this. We need to practice a little bit first. (laughs) And I know we've been practicing a lot of things, but singing parts can be difficult. But there are worship services. There are times that I've had in the presence of God's people, either out there or up here, that I will never forget. The dedication of this building, the ordination installation of new officers, those sweet moments of worship in which we gather as God's people and we reflect upon the beauty and the strength of his house. And the sons of Korah are saying, oh, how great it was. But we can't go there right now. And here is the great offense. We are in no way providentially hindered from gathering in worship. But the church in America, and frankly, I'm sure, much of the church throughout the world, though they are not providentially hindered, they are hindered by their lack of desire. They don't thirst. It is the thirst and the hunger that draw you. You know, they say that sugar is more addictive than cocaine. I don't know. (laughs) I cannot speak from personal experience, but I can say this. Uh, When I have been on significantly limited diets, I felt great. But when I was going off of that diet because I was going insane, I would taste sugar. And then that is all I could think of was when do I get my next sugary fix? And so I'm walking through the house and I'm trying not to open the pantry or the fridge. I don't want to know if there's ice cream. I don't, know, I don't want it and I am panting, salivating for something that is not good for me. And yet here... God has given us minds and bodies and souls. He has everything about us is built to connect with the exercise of corporate worship and to be fed and satisfied with it. But here's the problem. The problem is dinner is at 6, but I had a big bowl of cereal at 5.45, and I'm not hungry. The problem with sin is that it does spoil our appetite. And our thirst, our hunger is temporarily satiated by the very thing God is supposed to, well, the things of God. 
We become satiated by the things of the world and not the things of the Spirit. And so oftentimes, even in judgment, God removes from us those pleasures and, yes, even his presence. What happened in 2020 was apocalyptic. It was judgment. It was judgment. And we need to see it as judgment. And the way that the saints of God ought to respond to judgment is repentance and then renewed covenant faithfulness. And they should long. And in fact, the Lord is teaching us to long for the things of the Spirit. It is deep calling to deep. Worship is our highest calling. And it is the greatest tool for conforming our lives to the Savior. What I would say is this. The meal that you need that your family needs most to grow and be strong cannot be cooked at home. Rather, it is prepared, it is served, and fed to you by God in his word. Even as the spirit attends, it is here that we are nourished. Now, it may not seem every time like you leave this place and go, I'm full. But you can bring your appetite. When I say full, there are some services and there are some sermons that just don't hit you the same. That is the natural course of life. But the promise of God is this. When you come and you attend and you hear the preaching of his word, the spirit is putting meat on your bones. He is nourishing you. He is strengthening you. And so our appetite needs to be developed around those things that are best. And the question for us is this. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? And do you lament those, secondly, impediments to satisfaction? Verse 6, all of this longing, this remembering... He's thinking about how good it was to be in the house of God, but he's sad, verse 6. Because he remembers the place from which he is far off. And within him there is this emotional braying. There is this emotional talking to himself. There's some of that. He's talking to his own heart. Verse 8, the Lord will grant his loving kindness in the day and in the night shall I sing of him even a prayer unto the God of my life. He's still praying. He's still calling upon the name of the Lord. Verse 9, I will say unto God which is my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why go I mourning when the enemy oppresseth me? One of the problems that the saints of God often have when they are unfulfilled in their covenant longings for God is just look on the sunny side of life. We don't allow sorrow. Now, we ought not to allow unrighteous sorrow, unrighteous anger. But here it is sorrow for being prevented because of captivity from being in the house of God. And so he rightly says, Lord, why have you forgotten me? 
Now, remember, this is covenant language about a covenant ceremony, and he is speaking of judgment. Lord, why do you bring this judgment upon me? Have you forgotten your covenant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob? No, God is not. He, like the rest of Israel, is under judgment, though righteous. He is part of a politic, a body, a public, a nation that is almost completely unfaithful. And so he feels forgotten. Do you ever feel that way? The loss of a loved one? Times of sorrow? Times of pain? Lord, what are you doing? You pray in such a way that it sounds like you are not confident in God's sovereign decrees. But this is not blasphemy. It is the heart of of one whose longing is to be in the presence of God. And so, so great is his pain that there is a physical manifestation of it. My bones ache like a fever. While my enemies reproach me, saying daily unto me, where is their God? Have you ever experienced emotional terror and fear so much that your heart rate... Those emotional events have physical outcomes. He's mourning. And so he says to his soul in the midst of this, do you ever talk to yourself? (laughs) Sometimes I wonder if I'm not talking out loud. I talk so much to myself. Why art thou cast down my soul, and why art thou disquieted, peaceless? There is no peace. Wait on God For I will yet give him thanks. He is my present help and my God. The song of the enemy is a mocking. Where is your God? They are the impediment to worship. He calls from a place far removed from the sanctuary. But the song that he remembers and reminds himself of is God's covenant faithfulness. Now here is how we often act. When will X guy be out of X position of power so that we can do what we want? And we think almost purely physically or we think purely within the bounds of human authority. And we do not call out to the one who holds the the hearts of the kings in his hands. He remembers God's covenant promises instead of only reflecting on present difficult circumstances. Do you miss the absence of the Lord's presence when you are kept from the house of God? And do you cry out to the one who is able to solve the problem? Praying. Praying is that first step. How easily we often skip worship and we blame our thirst on other things. It is the thirst that drives us. But it is a reminder of and a meditation of God's covenant faithfulness that satisfies us. And God's covenant promises are louder or ought to be louder to our souls than the mocking, the derision of our enemies. All right, last point. A longing for vindication. And so the psalmist here is in a state of quiet Because he remembers the promises of God. He remembers it. 
He mourns that he cannot be there. He reflects upon the mocking of the enemies of God. Verse 9, I go mourning when the enemy oppresseth me. And it hurts. It's brutal. But there is this hope. There is, in essence, covenantally redemptive, historically speaking, light at the end of the tunnel. And then we go to 43. Judge me, O God, and defend my cause against the unmerciful people. Deliver me from the deceitful and the wicked man. He's praying that God would eliminate the impediment. Do away with it. He's praying for vindication. Because, after all, is it not the enemies of God that stand in our way? This prayer for vindication is a prayer so that he might return to the sanctuary of God. He is pleading. Now, these psalms are not dominated by the theme of war. There are some that are even heavier, these imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms are psalms of judgment, where you ask God to do terrible things to the enemies of God. What he is praying for, his calls to be vindicated. For thou art the God of my strength. Why hast thou put me away? Why go I so mourning when the enemy oppresses me? Send thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy mountain and to thy tabernacles. Now, verse 3 is the prayer of the righteous man in Egypt. And it is answered by Moses and God's faithful deliverance. And the occasion upon which Israel was set free was what? An unmistakable exercise whereby God drew the line between the family of God and the family of Satan. The family of the Messiah and the family of the devil. And there, through the blood of a shed animal which guarded the lives of God's covenant people, they were freed. They went through the Red Sea, thus baptized... That is, they were consecrated, and then they were, verse 3, led unto thine holy mountain, and then later to the tabernacle. What the psalmists are praying for is an expression of redemption and covenant faithfulness for the vindication of God against the enemies of God. This is something we continually ought to pray, and we ought to pray it when the enemies of God are approaching the sanctuary of God that we might not be hindered. Vindication is about the house not just open, but also growing and about presence expanding. It is about worship filling the whole world. But in order for the world to be filled with the worship of God, those who are called to be worshipers already must be faithful in worship. For many in the church, it is though we have been enlisted into the army of God, but we are unwilling to pick up the arms. No, worship itself is a means by which God brings in the nations. 
Send thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thine holy mountain. What light and truth? Well, it issues from the temple in Jerusalem, and it goes all the way to where they are in captivity. That light, then, is, is radiant. The nations can see it. He is asking for divine, miraculous salvation. And the answer to the prayer of Psalm 43 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who came forth from the heavenly temple, down to earth, the one whom we call light and life. And he brings us by his grace to the holy mountain for worship. The psalmist did not know how God would redeem in the details but they saw God's covenant formula throughout the Old Testament and they see the manner in which God delivers. It is a vindication that only God can do. It is a vindication that he brings to those who are his covenant children. And so he asks himself a question, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Wait upon God. This is the second time. We see it in verse 11 of chapter 42, and we see it again in verse 5 of chapter 43. Why art thou disquieted within me? Wait upon God, for I will yet give him thanks. He is my present help and my God. And so these psalms teach us to do two things. First, long for the house of God, and to be patient while God continues to set up his house on earth. It is a cry for messianic fulfillment, it is a cry for the fullness of that plan to be realized. It is a longing for the glory of God that leads to a hunger and thirst that is filled only by the Lord. Even in the face of trouble and deprivation, our hopelessness, our hopelessness is transformed by remembering God's covenant faithfulness. Now, here is how we can proactively fulfill the longing of Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, and that is this. Plant churches and support the work of the church. Fight against those who would seek to cease the work of church planting. When I say church planting, I'm saying Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 give us an incredible amount of information as to how we are to think of the work of missions. It is our mission to make sure that there are places of covenant gathering all over the world. And when needed, we do what we can to keep things open. For as long as we can, despite the trouble and trials. Because there is nothing better for mankind than to be able to draw near God and be satisfied in his presence. That is what Reformation exists to do. Number one, it is to be a place where God's covenant people can gather for worship. And the second part of that is to plant more outposts of God's covenant presence in this world where the people of God can gather. But in order to do that, we have to be hungry for it. That at the very heart of all missions is a hunger for the presence of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you-